My name is Dr Alex Markwell. I'm an emergency physician at the Royal Brisbane and Women's Hospital and the outgoing chair of the Queensland Clinical Senate. Alex, thank you very much for joining us today. Thanks, Rebecca. What made you become an emergency physician? Well, it's interesting. I actually thought when I was at medical school, I'd be an obstetrician, but I discovered pretty early on that I couldn't stand the smell of amniotic fluid, which has a very particular smell that not everyone can smell. So that um, was crossed off the list very early on in my career. And uh, in fact, I did a couple of years of physician training. I was going to become a a general physician, but uh, I realised I didn't really have the attention span and I really loved my time in in emergency as a junior doctor and um, loved bringing order order to chaos. And uh, it's a team sport and I really love that sort of environment. What about medicine though in general? How did you go down that path? Um, My mum's a physio and I had an uncle who's uh, now a retired GP, um, but I'd always liked science and biology and always thought I'd do something in health. In fact, probably at one point considered being a paramedic as well, Uh, but ended up doing a science degree. uh, And this was when the um, University of Queensland had changed to a postgraduate course and uh, applied and was successful getting into medicine, which has been fabulous. Alex, what's been your career path since graduating? Feels like a really long time ago, Rebecca. (laughs) It'll be, it's coming up to 20 years actually, which uh, feels like it's flown by. I uh, I did my training in Brisbane. I started my internship at the Royal Brisbane. It was just when the the building that currently exists now had just opened. was planning on being a a fairly ordinary junior doctor, but kind of got distracted along the way with various bits and pieces, which, um, you know, added variety and um, I suppose has ended up influencing why I'm doing what I'm doing, what I am now. Have you been at the RBWH for that 20 years? Um, the, the bulk of my training has been done there, yes, but I have worked in other hospitals as well as part of my emergency medicine training. So I've worked in Nambour, I've done some time uh, in rural Queensland, I've also worked at the Children's Hospital and um, uh, also worked at Greenslope's private hospital, both as a trainee and as an um, emergency physician after my training. You've been Director of Training at RBWH. What interested you in the training and education side of your career? I've always been fascinated and really enjoyed medical education and early on had a very influential mentor, um, Dr. Victoria Brazel, who many people will know. I remember one interview um, when she was my supervisor and I was having my end of term interview and she asked me what I wanted to do later on in my training and I kind of said, oh, I don't really know. And she said, well, I think I think you could do what I'm doing now. And I just looked at her and it just had never occurred to me, but it, um, throughout the rest of my training, I did um, a medical education special skills term and went on to become a co-director of emergency medicine training with some other colleagues across in ED. And um, it was great. I really loved it. I loved the involvement with the, the junior doctors as they come through and, and decide on emergency medicine as a career and uh, the you know the support we can provide throughout that training. I only finished when I took on this role, actually. It was something I really enjoyed and had done for quite a while. I read an article about you when you had won an award from the university and you were saying in that that you like to give back to your profession. Are you still able to do that at the moment through training and education? Well, one of the great things of working in, I think, pretty much all of the public hospitals in Queensland is that they're all associated with universities and I think everyone has an opportunity to 
contribute to the education and training of um, health science students coming through, whether they're medical students or nursing students or paramedic students or whoever um, you have the opportunity to work with. Where I work, we have we have a large number of medical students who come through and obviously nursing students and paramedics as well and even um, social work students and pharmacy students. So it's it's a great environment and it's um, it really is, a, I said before it was a team sport, but it really is. We have such a fantastic multidisciplinary team and I really, I really love that, I thrive in that environment. You mentioned before, Alex, about the possibility of you becoming a paramedic. Did you do a fellowship with the Queensland Ambulance Service? I did, I did. So my, uh, I think that my paramedic phase probably was the same as, you know, the firefighter phase and, and the other phases that you go through as a as a, a young person. Um, but I did love, I think I just love the, the drama and the, <laughs> I suppose, the excitement, I guess. But I did do a um, six-month fellowship with the Queensland Ambulance Service working with Dr. Steve Rashford, as, um, who, again, I think many people would know in Queensland. And that was 10 years ago now, which, again, uh, seems to have flown by. But it was a really interesting six months, just continue to be so impressed with the skills of our paramedics who just make incredible decisions and are able to assess and start treating patients very quickly with very little information. In emergency medicine, we pride ourselves on, you know, making decisions based on little information and having to fly by the seat of our pants, but it really doesn't compare to what happens pre-hospital and on road. So um, uh, it was a tough six months, but I I learned a lot from it. And um, it has meant that I have been able to meet people also such as Russell Walls and and many other people who continue to cross paths with even now, which has been a, a real privilege. Did it change? the way you practice as an emergency physician, giving you that different perspective? It certainly gives you a better understanding of what might have gone on before a patient arrives. And it uh, has given me a lot more respect for what happens before. And when things aren't done, there's usually really good reason for why someone hasn't, you know, we haven't been able to get a cannula or start some particular treatment. It's because, you know, bad things were happening and the, the team have done the absolute best that they could. Alex, you became the youngest ever president of the Australian Medical Association Queensland. Why did you decide to take on the role so early in your medical career? So I guess I've been involved with the AMA pretty much since I started work as an intern and um, had been involved in various different committees throughout that time. And between 2007 and 2009 was the national chair of the Council of Doctors in Training. And that had been just a fascinating experience. Really learned a lot about health policy, understanding um, federal politics, state politics, and also having a fantastic group of people who I worked with, senior doctors, as well as medical students, who many of whom I'm still close friends and uh, colleagues with now. And I had thought at some point I might go in to continue uh, medical advocacy at some point. And the year that I ran was an interesting year because we already had quite a few candidates who had uh, nominated and that's unusual. It's rare that you'd have more than one or two candidates. And I figured I didn't really have anything to lose. And I thought, oh, I'll give it a, give it a crack. It was a good time from a, a personal point of view. Uh, didn't have kids at that point, had just finished my specialty exams and probably in retrospect, was quite, I'm going to say arrogant because as a, as a, as a brand new consultant, it probably was, but it was a, again, a, an incredible experience. It was a lot of hard work. Uh, again, learned a lot uh, along the way, but ha- absolutely has influenced and had a, a, a strong and lasting effect, I suppose, and, and influenced my career to date. So Alex, you became chair of the Senate in early 2019. What attracted you to that role? Well, I guess I've mentioned before the previous advocacy type roles that I've had and I 
Although I loved the director of emergency medicine training roles and some of the other roles I'd had with the college, I was really, I think, ready for my next system level challenge. And uh, I was approached and asked if I would consider it. And I I hadn't considered it at all, although I was aware of the Senate, working with David Rosengren, um, it's pretty hard not to be aware <laughs> of the uh, of the Senate. And I think it was, a, you know, an exciting opportunity at that time. I was actually just coming back from um, part-time, having had our youngest daughter only a couple of years before. So the original uh, pitch was one day a fortnight, which I thought would be, um, you know, I could fit that in around work and that would all be all right. So it, it sounded like a, a nice... Um, easy, gentle re-entry into that space. How quickly things yep. changed, but but we'll come to that. Alex, your first meeting as chair focused on the health and wellbeing of health workers. And that's a topic that's really close to your heart. Why is that? I've been interested in particularly doctors' health and wellbeing for a long time. And then more recently, a more general, I, I suppose, approach to the health and wellbeing of healthcare workers. And that really stems from my involvement with the AMA and some of the work that we did with the the Council of Doctors and Training quite a long time ago now, and at least in part was influenced by the ongoing and very tragic situations where we've seen particularly young doctors, but young clinicians and and other clinicians uh, take their own lives. And it still happens today and we do talk about it, but probably not as much as we should. And it's certainly not something that is only seen in doctors. It's absolutely seen across all of health. And uh, that's one one extreme, but more, I, I suppose, more generally, if we promote a health and wellbeing of our staff and our workforce, we're much more likely to have a really productive, happy, healthy team. And by extension, our patients will do better. And one of the things that we focused on at that meeting was really, you know, it's fine to talk about health and wellbeing of the staff, but why is that important? Well, it's really important for the patients for whom we care for. And uh, I, I think that was one of the key messages that we really wanted to get across and make sure that at a system level, we understood the, the safety and quality benefits to looking after our staff above and beyond just their own wellbeing, but also uh, for the people of Queensland. And I know you you very much practice what you preach. So how do you look after your own mental health and wellbeing? I have often reflected that you feel like a complete hypocrite when, you, when you're talking about health and wellbeing because you actually hold yourself to a really high standard because you feel like you have to role model everything and I fail constantly, but that's okay. Practicing self-compassion is, is, and self-kindness is, is one aspect of it, particularly during the last couple of years, which have been just incredibly hectic for everyone. I have tried to focus on my own physical well-being at least as a starting point um, if nothing else sitting at a computer for days on end doing to back-to-back teams meeting meetings really changed the way we worked in the past we would we would move around we'd walk from meeting to meeting we'd go to offices you know we'd walk around the hospital and visit people in their in their offices but I just found that I'd be sitting at my desk all day and, you, and you'd be there and you haven't you know you might have gone up to get a drink but you haven't done anything so really trying to schedule in regular exercise I started uh, listening to audiobooks when I walk partly because I was listening to podcasts that meant that by the end end of my walk, I was so stressed out listening to the podcast about COVID. It certainly didn't relax me at all. So I have changed how I do things now. And I am actually really looking forward to next year, which I think we're going to talk about in a little bit, but just having a chance to stop and rejuvenate. Just thinking about your role in emergency, I don't imagine there would be much sitting down as opposed to your role as chair of the Senate. That must have been quite an adjustment for you. Yes. And in fact, it meant that the days that I did go and work clinically, I loved even more, Um, not just because you're moving and walking and talking and and seeing people, but just having that that contrast between talking policy and talking those sorts of things all day, but when you're actually caring for patients and 
talking to colleagues and seeing firsthand what the challenges are. I think that's really important. I know David Rosengren in the past has been a really strong um, advocate of clinician leaders keeping the clinician part of their leadership roles and, and really making sure that they stay clinically relevant. And I completely, uh, completely agree and understand why he's done that. Alex, your first year in the job as chair of the Senate was fairly standard, I guess we could say, as far as that role had been. But when COVID hit, the role changed dramatically and has been anything but standard since. What role have you and the Senate taken on? Look, it's been fascinating. The the first year of my term, um, although it was quote unquote standard, it was still really busy and it was probably a lot busier than previous Senate chairs have, have been. And that reflected um, some of the work that was going on in the department with ministerial priorities and rapid results and various other um, activities that were underway. And so, in fact, that first year was definitely a lot more than what I was originally expecting, but that was okay. It was um, interesting. It was engaging. And then, of course, when COVID came, it just uh, was a game changer for everyone. And what we really found was the clinician engagement aspect and, and consumer engagement as well. We were lacking those processes early on. And so one of the great things that I think we've been able to achieve with the Senate and with the network as well is establish some really great approaches to clinician engagement, but also really strengthen some of the collaboration and the relationships with our consumer partners so that we could respond and adapt and uh, really move dynamically as things change, which they have, of course, and continue to do so. You've really been an incredible leader, Alex, during the pandemic. Among many things that you've done is create a COVID-19 update email that goes out to more than 16,000 clinicians daily or as needed. Has it been an interesting experience for you? Oh, without a doubt. But, you know, one of the best things is just how responsive and willing everyone has been to, to come on this journey. And to be able to set up an, an email that we can send out almost daily, if well, even twice daily sometimes if we need to, we just couldn't have done that before COVID. And although COVID has challenged us, it has provided us with some opportunities that we just wouldn't have probably had before. So being able to email uh, regularly and provide updates. Our virtual meetings, um, you know, we, we obviously love our face-to-face meetings and they have a special role, but being able to move to virtual meetings has meant we've still been able to engage. We've still been able to meet. We've in fact met more frequently than we've previously done. And by virtue of it being a virtual meeting, we've been able to have more people attend. So in a, in a sense, it's actually increased our ability to engage and potentially influence. There are a lot of meetings and there are some days where we just, it is still back to back, which is less than ideal, but it is a, a privilege, I think, to be able to have that opportunity to provide input and hopefully connect clinicians and, and the the end users, I suppose, of the system with the system higher up. And sometimes that that's a long, that's a big breach sometimes and can take a lot to to bridge that gap. You've also had the opportunity to work in COVID testing clinics and also in vaccination. (laughs) Has that been important to be still at that ground level throughout the pandemic and then come back into this position where you're working at the system level? Has that helped to inform your advice? Uh, look, I think it it has, and particularly early on when we that the rules around testing and who who was eligible for testing was really challenging. And in fact, we spent a lot of our time trying to convince people that they didn't meet and didn't need to be tested, although we obviously wanted them to still go home and isolate. But 
becoming intimately aware with the the various guidelines that exist and, and you know talking about the cdna song and all, all these documents that we just had never heard of before and you suddenly become um, it's a bit like the olympics you become a, a pseudo expert in an area although clearly not an expert but certainly aware of some of the um subject um, that we'd never really considered before. The vaccination effort was great. One of the lovely things was probably around the middle of the year when we we just had a great response from the community turning up to vaccinate. And it was actually a really lovely experience because everyone who was there wanted to be vaccinated and people were so grateful and thank you, you know, would say thank you for providing the vaccine. So certainly in comparison to an emergency department where it's often not the case, you know, long queues of happy people as opposed to long queues of unhappy people. So I, I really enjoyed that. But I think also it um, it does provide that on the ground information to feedback, which sometimes can get diluted along the way. Alex, you finish in your position with the Senate in December. As you look back and reflect on, on your three years in the chair, what's been your greatest achievement or, or what are you most proud of? That's a really tough question because we've done a lot and I was trying to think of what really sums up the effort of the Senate. But I think having our podcasts, having our emails, having our approaches to clinician engagement and having those really strong partnerships with our consumers is is probably the thing that I'm most proud of. Um, I mean, obviously there's a few things in there. And one of the other things, which is not nearly as exciting, but having really good processes around succession planning and, and improving the governance of the the Senate itself, I think, is a, a somewhat boring but important process that I'm, I'm hopeful will um, will continue to hold the Senate in good stead into the future. Alex, you mentioned there about consumers and those important relationships, which I have seen you develop and form over your time as chair. What does good clinician and consumer engagement look like? We've been so uh, privileged to work closely with Health Consumers Queensland and obviously would like to acknowledge the contribution of Melissa Fox and Erin Evans, who have been incredibly supportive partners throughout all of this. What we've found over the last couple of years is meaningful engagement and good engagement involves the people at the beginning. So clinicians and consumers from the beginning. And it is particularly effective when you uh, take on board the feedback and even more so when it is feedback that doesn't seem to sit with what your expectations were. So when that feedback doesn't match, I think having the courage to explore why that is, is when it becomes into its own, I suppose, and when it becomes most effective. So when we've, I think, had the most impact is when we've been able to reveal where there might be a, a, a need to take a different approach or identified where there may be some areas that hadn't been considered. And uh, that takes courage from the system. And um, I have to say it takes courage from the consumers and the clinicians as well, because it can sometimes be tough um, being a, you know, one or two voices, the dissenting voices in a room sometimes. So I think having that mutual respect for each other's perspectives is really important. Being listened to is, is key. We've really heard over the last three years some amazing stories from consumers and really brave people who are really dedicated to making a difference, haven't we? I think the highlight for most people on the Senate meetings is listening to the consumers and hearing their first-hand lived experience. And there isn't a meeting where that hasn't occurred and everyone on that meeting has just reflected about, and particularly when we've had our adolescent to young adult care meeting, I'm thinking of where we had young people and having the courage to present to a, you know, several hundred clinicians from around the state was incredibly powerful. And I really look forward to seeing that ongoing engagement going forward. 
Alex, what's the greatest thing you've learned about the system from your time as chair of the Senate that you really didn't appreciate prior to the role? Coming into the role, thought I had a, a pretty good sense of the system, having worked in, in the system for a long time and also in the roles with the AMA and others. Uh, but I can safely say I had no idea how complex and complicated the system was until I was actually in it. Uh, I think it took me the first six months in the role to even work out who was who and, and the, you know all the different the roles and the divisions and and so on. I've also seen how well people can work together and I've just been so impressed. There are so many good people doing really good things, particularly in times of stress and strain. And I think we saw this particularly in March last year when we had just remarkable efforts out in um, the hospital health services and within the department to really respond. We're about to see that again and it will be, I think, a really important aspect of our success is, is how we band together and how we how we respond to our next COVID challenge. Alex, what's the greatest thing you've learned about yourself as part of this experience with the Senate? I have had to work on my diplomacy. Um, I think anyone who knows me knows that I, um, I don't, I definitely don't have a poker face and I tend to say what I think. And, uh, much to the delight of the people who I sit with, my filter is not always there. And so I've had to work really hard to put that in place. The approaches that I've employed previously just don't work in, in, in this circumstance. So that, that's been, um, an interesting experience. I've also really been reminded of my own core values and think they've held They've held me in good stead. So really thinking about truth and transparency and those those values which have guided me over the last few years. Uh, and finally, um, my incredible family who are such who are long suffering but wonderful. And and uh, even when I'm not my best at home, because you tend to give your best to work, which uh, again is not a, a great thing. Um, they've always forgiven me when I've been short tempered and tired and trying to trying to pull together dinner after coming home from a meeting and all you know all those usual things. Alex, what's the one thing you'll always remember about your experience with the Senate? The incredible camaraderie the Senate executive, the team members, including yourself and the rest of the team in Clinical Excellence Queensland. I think that unbelievable support when it all got really tough, everyone just pitched in. There were times when we grumbled, but we still just, you know, we can't hold a face-to-face meeting. That's fine. We'll just figure out how to do a virtual meeting. We can't do things the way we used to do it. That's okay. We'll just find a different way. And that um, ability to innovate and um, really respond and, you know, it, it, it was very, very rare that we ever said something was too tough. We just found a way to do it. And I think that can-do attitude was just brilliant. Alex, you finish in the role at the end of December. What's next for Dr. Alex Markwell? Well, my grand plan, when we knew that Tanya was coming into the role and we started talking about what her, her term might look like, uh, this was earlier in the year, we thought that COVID would be done. <laughs> We'd be all through COVID, so we wouldn't have any of those problems. My, my plan is to take long service leave. Our youngest daughter, Margot, starts prep next year, and the last few years have been pretty full on for her. So we're looking forward to just spending a little bit more time with our daughters. And I guess I've had to revise my expectations a little bit because I suspect with our COVID numbers likely to go up soon, I, I am prepared to have to come back to work clinically. My uh, my boss has promised me that he'll give me as much leave as we possibly can. But I'm, you know, I think just having a, an opportunity just to stop and just take a little bit of time will be great and hopefully do a few of the things that I've 
wanted to do more of for a long time, including sailing. Now, certainly not to the extent that uh, Tanya sails, but a few few of those sorts of things, which would be really nice just to be able to do. Alex, you've been an absolutely outstanding chair of the Senate and we wish you all the very best for the future. Thank you so much for talking with me. Thanks so much, Rebecca. And um, I just wanted to thank everyone who's been on this journey with me. There are so many people, but particularly Chris Raftery as Deputy Chair, Liz Kenny as Chair of the Clinical Network Executive, and the various other people along the way who have provided support and wisdom and guidance, I guess. Thanks so much. 